millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST site. Mine website, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcast. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz or at Banking Day. For the most exclusive access to leading economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business from my website, leongetler.com. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance, and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number five in our series for 2024, and today's date is Friday, March the 1st. First, I'll be talking to Richard Kirkman, the CEO of Viola. Research undertaken by Viola, the nation's leader in ecological transformation, found that climate distress and eco-anxiety have become the norm in Australia, with the majority of Aussies placing emphasis on the role that businesses must play in addressing these issues. And I'll be talking to AMP Capital Chief Economist Shane Oliver, who summarises the profit reporting season, which ended this week. But first, let's talk to Richard Kirkman. Richard, tell us about this latest survey that Veolia has done about Australia. Yeah, so we conducted uh, actually a global uh, survey of, of people around their views on climate change and pollution and the environment. And in, in Australia particularly, it was a really interesting uh, result because what we found is that there were some climate sceptics around still. One in five people um, not thinking that uh, climate change and carbon emissions are associated to uh, human activity. And not everyone really tuned in to the fact that climate change is happening. It's caused by man-made efforts and that we need to do something about it. That said, of the people that do believe that there is an issue with the climate, very high numbers are willing to change the way they do things. So buy and recycle products, adjusting their lifestyles and doing things differently so to have less impact. So we think there's a massive opportunity here to, first of all, get more people on board, that this is a good thing to do for everyone. And secondly, once we get them on board, we know that people will be up for those changes. As I understand, 84% of your survey found Australians were either concerned or anxious about climate disruption. Yeah, that's that's the kind of anomaly, that there's there's uh, one in five or, or a third of people more sceptical, but at the same time, they, they're anxious about climate disruption. I think it's maybe people don't necessarily think it uh, a human cause issue and that it's around how we you know, use wastes around how we produce drinking water, around our energy production methods. People clearly see that there is an impact on the climate. There's clearly more droughts, more bushfires, more floods in Australia. So that's evident. And that's why you've got your high 84% of people uh, concerned about that climate disruption. But probably there's not enough people yet recognising that there's something we can do about it. It's not a given. And we can adapt 
react to these changes in the climate. But uh, your survey also found, I mean, I mean in, in light of that, I mean, uh, there's lots of people who've been through floods and bushfires, and you've also found that two-thirds of people, or something like 68%, said they felt exposed to harsh living conditions. That's right. And, you know, and that's clearly evident in Australia where there are lots of natural events happening more often than they used to. Just have to look at the last couple of years with the wet weather on the eastern seaboard to see that that's happening more often. And we need to have new infrastructure that is able to respond to that. So a great example would be 10 years ago, there were desalination plants built across Australia and nothing's been built since then. Now we need a new wave of desalination to ensure that we have enough drinking water during periods of drought, but also during periods of flood. Because during periods of flood, the rest of the water networks are not able to cope and we run the desalination plants at full bore. And that's been recognised in policy now. We're, we're seeing that new kind of renaissance of desalination plants happening across Australia. But uh, the issue is how does this affect businesses and how should businesses address those concerns? Well, I think one of the big impacts for businesses more broadly with climate change is the emissions, uh, their carbon dioxide emissions, either that they're producing directly or that they're uh, responsible for through their supply chain, through things they buy. And clearly there's been a turnaround in policy in the last year or so with the Labour government coming in with a 43% emissions reduction target. So businesses are realising, and 65% of businesses say they need to, to do more in our survey. They need to do more about how they control their emissions. And we can help them with that because our mission of ecological transformation is all about how can Australia continue to mine its resources, to manufacture materials, to produce food, and to manage its resources to the benefit of all the people of Australia, to the, you know, to the, to the wealth of the citizens, but at the same time, have less impact. I don't think this is an agenda of let's stop doing things, because I don't think that's sustainable for an economy. It's more about how can we continue to do those things, but protect the environment, have less emissions, recycle more waste, collect food waste and turn it into energy, use recycled water instead of producing new water. All those things we know work, the technology works, we just need to roll them out. Uh, but the issue too is that we have a massive resources industry and uh, that's quite an issue in terms of climate change and the campaigns around climate change. Yeah, absolutely. And that, I think that's what I'm saying, that we, I don't think curbing a resources industry is the right way forward. I think enabling that resources industry to be carbon neutral, to recycle materials and to introduce recycled streams into their product is the way forward. So we can produce renewable energy for these large resource companies. We can provide them fresh water from recycled water rather than using new sources of water. And we can push material back around the supply chain. An example could be lithium in car batteries. You know, in other countries, in, in Northern Europe, we have battery recycling centers where we take in car batteries and we recycle the lithium and the rare earths back into the, into the economy, back through those mineral companies who have the expertise in how to refine them. And that is coming here very soon. Do, do we actually have the industries and skill sets to do that? Well, I would say we don't have enough of the industries and skill sets. And that's why we're working very hard with the academic community to see how we can have engineers, scientists and marketeers, legal people, all the different disciplines trained up for a new wave of industry, which is about how we ecologically transform.
You know, we need the right skill sets. I think in the circular economy alone, which is recycling materials around, we need about 100,000 new people in Australia over the next 10 years. And we will need to retrain. And I think as other industries tail off, some will reduce. For example, you know, the coal sector might see some reductions and we've seen some plants already announced that will reduce. People will become available or open to be retrained to work in the new, new economy the new economy of environmental. This would be particularly true with coal-fired power plants, wouldn't it? Yeah, and I think there already, as I say, have been some announced that will close and there will be people that operate those facilities. And I really need people that know how to operate steam turbines, which is what a a coal-fired power station uh, requires, to operate facilities running on waste producing energy where we have a steam turbine. And I need those resources, those human resources that are skilled in running those kind of machines to move to the more sustainable version of that technology. Whilst at the same time, there may be many facilities that continue operating, but we capture the carbon from them and we store that carbon or we convert it to something useful like a sustainable aviation fuel or ammonia for fertilizer, sustainable fertilizer production. So all these new kind of industries are going to pop up and we need new engineers and new, new marketeers and new salespeople to work in that sector. And, uh, but the issue too is uh, how businesses can actually turn these into their business goals. That that would require a complete mind shift. But I think that mind shift has already started and they, people talk about the ESG agenda and sustainability reports. And that is all becoming very real very quickly. Now that there are carbon emission reductions requirements, there's uh, the safeguard mechanism, which I think it started already. The transition the transformation to businesses thinking about their entire supply chain and their emissions all the way from scope one to scope four scope one being what you emit directly scope two being the electricity that you buy scope three being your supply chain and scope four being the positive carbon reduction you provide by running your business because when i operate a recycling center i recycle 100,000 tons of material somewhere someone's not having to produce that new material and that's providing huge benefit to the economy and to the environment. It's also a question of the business actually having the people there to actually develop that and getting their heads. That's right and I I honestly think it's happening and we can pick lots of examples which may be few and far between in Australia at the moment. If you look overseas in uh, particularly northern Europe you'll see a lot of industries are uh, thinking about how they can cycle all the material around ensure they use their wastes to either produce energy, produce fresh water, or to use that material again in the process. So there are examples and references of being able to do it. In Australia, likewise, there are examples. The the brewery and distillery industry is famously a good example of being able to use its wastes either as another product, a byproduct, or to produce energy. So digesting their sludges into a biogas, which can be used to power the plant. There's other sectors like the dairy sector, where we think there's lots of opportunity. I actually think if you were to take all the sewage sludges from water treatment and the food waste, and also collect all the methane produced at landfills, we'd be able to produce about 10% of Australia's required gas supply, which is massive. Well, Richard, that's all quite been quite fascinating and thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much, Dion. And now let's talk to AMP Capital Chief Economist Shane Oliver. Well, Shane, what's your take on the profit reporting season? Look, to, to be honest with you, Leon, it's been okay. I wouldn't say it's fantastic, but expectations coming into this profit reporting season were quite subdued. Expectation of analysts was for a something like a 5 to 6% fall in profits for this financial year. 
And generally speaking, we've seen somewhat more than normal companies surprised on the upside on the latest numbers. You know, we're, we're almost 70% of the way through the profit reporting season. This week, of course, is the busiest week. But on the latest numbers, we've got something like 43% of companies have surprised on the upside. And that's and, and 39% on the downside. So that doesn't sound overly fantastic, but it's slightly more than normal surprising on the upside and slightly less than normal surprising on the downside. And likewise, when you look at the number of companies recording profits up on a year ago, we've got 55% of companies reporting higher profits on a year ago, which is an improvement from what we saw back in the last reporting season in August last year, when it was slightly less than 50%. So overall, you know, you've got more companies than not seeing profits actually rise on a year ago and slightly more companies surprising on the upside than on the downside. But overall, compared to past, it's, it's not an overly flash reporting season. <laughs> There's been much stronger periods than this, but uh, so far, so good. It's not, not anywhere near as bad as feared. I suspect that analyst earnings expectations will still remain for a fall of around 5 to 6% for this financial year. But the good news is that it's certainly not coming in any worse than that, maybe fractionally better. It does say something about the resilience of companies when a lot of women, when they reported their share price actually increased. That's right. And that may have surprised many who, who watch the market. As always, I should point out, in reporting seasons, you have a bias towards better results coming early. So some companies have fixed dates. You know, they always go on the second Wednesday of the reporting season, whereas some will move their dates around a little bit. And it has to be been a tendency over the years for better results to come up front. And then as we go on, they're not quite as good. But one area where there has been a little bit of a surprise was particularly retail and stocks like, I think, JB Hi-Fi, Xgali and so on. They're sort of struggling. They've had tough times, but maybe not as bad as feared. And some of the outlook guidance from the retailers wasn't too bad either. And consequently, the market investors are thinking, well, okay, not so good, but not as bad as it could have been. And somewhere out there, we're going to get lower interest rates, which will help Australian consumers. And so that's why the market reaction has been sort of okay. The other aspect in, in, in relation to those individual stocks, the other aspect, of course, is that we came into this profit reporting season at the start of February with a record high on the ASX 200 in the Australian share market. And after such a huge run-up, particularly since October last year, we're always going to go through a bit of a consolidation. So when you look at the overall market, I think it's it's sort of you know chug sideways <laughs> over the last uh, the last little while, the last few weeks of the reporting season. But I think that's probably to be expected, given the extent of the gains that we had seen coming out of the uh, the lows in October last year. It's interesting. I mean, you're saying people are thinking, or investors are thinking, oh, you know, well, there's interest rates cuts ahead. So they're thinking long term, but they'd also be thinking about the tax cuts coming in too. That's right. It's it's a combination of the two now. There, there were going to be tax cuts anyway, but those tax cuts have now been skewed more to lower and particularly middle income earners um, who are more likely to spend them. Whereas the previous stage three tax cuts were, were, were favouring more the higher income earners. They still get big tax cuts, but not as big as they otherwise would have been. But of course, uh, you've got now something like 90% of taxpayers getting some sort of tax cut. So that change in the skew of the stage three tax cuts to, to, to again favour or yeah, more going to low and middle income earners, much like stages one and two did, could potentially boost spending because it's low and middle income earners. They're the people who are likely to be stretched in their mortgages, particularly facing the cost of living pressures and so on. So giving them some money means that more of the tax cuts are likely to be spent. So that's also a boost. So you've got this combination 
I, th I think of things coming together, which the market is starting to view more favourably. Obviously, interest rate cuts sometime, we think starting in the middle of the year, other economists say starting later in the year, but that will provide some relief the tax cuts. And you could also argue, and we saw in the figures this week, you know, wages growth is now starting to edge above, ever so slightly above, uh, the rate of inflation. 4.2% for the year to December for wages, 4.1% for inflation, which doesn't mean that the huge rise in prices has now been recovered. It, it certainly hasn't, but at least things are starting to go in a better direction again. So those three things, potential for lower interest rates, tax cuts, and the return of real wages growth, I think are seen as a bit of a positive for the household sector in Australia and consumers, even though we're still going to go through a bit of a rough patch for the next uh, the next few months at least. So overall, you'd say this profit reporting season, while it hasn't been brilliant, has been better than expected? Yeah, overall, it's, it's a bit, little bit better than expected. I, I, I should point out that the final numbers, and I think also the market's expectations coming into this reporting season, were always going to be a little bit skewed. A lot of the weakness that is coming through the fall end profits, that 5 to 6% fall, the bulk of that was to be driven by you know, the energy stocks. Whereas if, if you look at, on the other hand, if you exclude energy and financials, the rest of the market is seeing flat to up profits, which is interesting. I think consumer staples are negative. Consumer discretionary is actually slightly positive. So it's it's that the weakness we are seeing is very much concentrated, particularly in the energy sector, after the massive rise in uh, energy prices for coal, gas, and oil that we saw coming on the back of the invasion of Ukraine by Russia, which boosted profits in the last financial year. So. That, that's just worth bearing in mind as well. I think the other aspect is that you know, a, lot, a lot of bad news has already been factored in for retailers, so that's why they're perhaps getting some support through all of this. A couple of other things worth noting, I think cost control has generally been good. That's been helping companies, and you know, that's, that's helped maintain margins, uh, like even the banking sector, which is seeing some pressure on margins, you know, there's been mixed results there. I think some of the banks were able to maintain their margins by good cost, cost control. Yeah, I mean, overall, I mean, I was very struck by how mixed the this season has been. I mean, there's been some fantastic results and others not so good. Yeah, I guess that's to be expected. You know, we have come into a period where, well, energy sector dragging the profits down uh, as a whole, if you take that out, you're probably looking at about flat to slightly up profits. So within that, you're going to see some spectacularly positive results and some spectacularly negative results. And I guess that's no surprise. We, we're not in an environment where everything is going positively for the corporate sector. And that sort of environment would, would be one where most companies get lifted, even if they make mistakes. Whereas we are in an environment where a lot depends on you know, what sector you're in and also how you're managing and areas like cost control becomes a lot more important. You know, we've seen banks that have managed to keep control of their costs do better than those that haven't. So how would the RBA be looking at this? Well, they'll be looking at everything, which gives them some guidance to how the economy is going. Uh, I think in, the, in a big picture sense, it's probably neutral for the RBA. You know, things aren't strong enough, I think, to sort of bring on another rate hike. But by the same token, on their own, they're not—they're probably not weak enough to enhance or, or bring forward prospects for rate cuts. But the wages figures yesterday—they weren't strong enough for the wages figures that we got out for December quarter. That they weren't strong enough to bring forward uh, to bring on more rate hikes. But then they're not weak enough to, to bring forward rate cuts. So that—that's the way I would see it. It's sort of they're somewhere in the 
in the neutral zone. So I don't, I don't think the RBO would be reading too much into it. It's not that the results weren't extreme enough to do that. And of course, they would also know that the bulk of the reason we're going to see a, a fall in profits this year is because of this slump in the energy sector. Of course, the RBO's focus will be totally on the next inflation figures. That's right. Inflation is the big one. We have seen good news on inflation. It has fallen. Take the monthly numbers because they're more timely, even though they're more volatile. They fell from 8.4% peak in December 2022. And in most recent numbers, they've fallen to around 3.3, 3.4. So that's, that's very positive news. And with that, the quarterly number that the RBA focuses on more has also come down, albeit it will lag the monthly, of course, so they're going to be focusing on that. We get another reading of that in the week ahead. It's likely to show that inflation remains in the threes. Um, I don't think we'll see another leg down yet because some negative inflation numbers dropped out in January last year. So the monthly rise in January last year was something like minus 0.3. Unless we see minus 0.4 or even less, then the, the monthly number will stay around or maybe rise a little bit from where it was reported to be in December. But I think the broader picture is down for inflation. What the RBA wants to see is... One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Because they know this is happening. They want to see more confidence that it's going to keep going down and stay down around the two and a half percent level ultimately we think they will get enough evidence of that by the middle of the year to start cutting but very high risk that it may take a little bit longer than that the central bank was surprised on the upside by the rise of inflation that caused them a lot of pain the last thing they want to do is sort of jump in there with rate cuts and then reverse them again because then that will just add to the pain again so that they want to be fairly uh, comfortable that you know when they do ease it can be sustained and at this stage, they're thinking, well, it's, it's still a bit too early. But central banks are gradually moving in that direction. We've also seen from the US Federal Reserve uh, minutes from their last meeting, similar sentiment from them. Of course, the Fed is a little bit more advanced because US inflation is running a little bit lower than it is in Australia. So that means the Fed is now considering when to start cutting interest rates, whereas in Australia, the debate is you know, still around whether to hike again or to leave rates on hold. I think they will stay on hold and ultimately they will cut. But obviously, we'd, we've got a, a way to go yet. Before we get to that point. The last minutes of the RBA meeting indicated they were still thinking of maybe hiking rates. That's certainly right. Uh, that was what was on the table. They thought about hiking again and leaving rates on hold. They didn't think about cutting. And their guidance uh, implied that you know, they still can't rule out a further hike. So it's still not balanced in the sense that they're considering three scenarios, cutting 
holding or hiking, then they're not, they're still only considering the uh, the last two, holding or hiking at the, at the present point in time. And that, I guess, is probably where maybe New Zealand is. Yeah. Whereas other central banks, I think in Europe and the UK even and the US are a bit more advanced than we are because their inflation rates went up earlier, their inflation rates peaked earlier, they started to hike most cases before we did and consequently they're further down the track. I, th- I think we will get to where they are reasonably soon but for now the RBA still has a very mild tightening bias. It's not yet thinking about uh, cutting rates. Well Shane that's all very enlightening and thank you very much for your time. Thank you Leon. So what's happening in the news? Well the monthly CPI indicator has slowed rising 3.4% in the 12 months to January undershooting analysts' consensus forecasts for a rise to 3.6%, and universities could soon be facing major funding changes as the biggest review of the sector in decades calls for radical reshaping of the tertiary education sector. The Australian Universities Accord has recommended funding be delivered on a needs basis, similar to primary and high school funding, where extra loadings would be provided based on student and institutional disadvantage to make the system more accessible. Its call to boost university attainment rates nationally to 80% would effectively create a demand-driven system for disadvantaged students. The review provides the federal government with a blueprint for long-term changes that seeks to tackle seal shortages in health, childcare, science, education and manufacturing. The Universities Accord said failing to increase student numbers would do lasting damage to Australia's prospects of national economic success, as well as damage social cohesion by locking out certain groups from higher paid jobs. Also among the recommendations are calls to double the number of university places, force institutions to pay those doing compulsory placements, increase the tertiary attainment target to 80% by 2050, and abolish the former coalition's government-failed job-ready graduates policy that put costs up for arts degrees. The university's accord is a review of the entire sector, looking at everything from how to make unis more accessible to student safety and the role the sector will play in Australia's future. It lays out a blueprint for a widespread overhaul of a sector that teaches and employs thousands. The Federal Government commissioned the review to inform the changes it will be making to tertiary education. Key recommendations include more than doubling the number of uni places to 1.8 million in 2050, to needs-based funding for certain groups and courses to make the system more equitable. This would involve increasing access to university education for students who are First Nations, from poor backgrounds, have a disability and or come from a regional, rural or remote area. Other recommendations include better financial support for students and paying them for compulsory placements and moving towards a HEX help loan system where contributions are based on on future potential earnings. And confidential treasury analysis shows decade-high wages growth has pushed the average full-time salary above 100000 and is now the biggest driver of consumer price inflation, undercutting claims widespread corporate profit gouging is to blame. Pay rises overtook import prices and supply shocks to form the lion's share of headline CPI in the June quarter last year, according to Treasury analysis, a trend economists expect continued to the end of 2023 and into 2024. The analysis undercuts claims from the Greens, unions and former ACCC chairman Alan Fells that widespread price gouging has been causing price rise. Those claims have sparked a wave of inquiries, including a Greens led Senate probe into supermarket pricing, a year-long inquiry led by the ACCC, and a review of the voluntary code by Craig Emerson. The inflation analysis showed labour costs made up almost two-thirds of headline CPI in the year to June 30, 2023. The remainder was made up of import prices, global price shocks, and other elements. When annual CPI peaked at 7.8% in December 2022, wages made up about 30%. 
And the tax office is investigating a suspected $180 million tax fraud by a top form work contractor in the construction industry that could end up as the biggest tax fraud in Australian corporate history. Administrators of collapsed New South Wales company Dalma Form Specialists have reported that the tax office alleges the firm was part of a group of 30 companies, including labour hire, that it suspects may have been secretly controlled by Dalma director Igor Kikes as a collapse owing pay-as-you-go tax over 15 years. The alleged tax scheme has yet to be substantiated, but if proven, would be bigger than any previous corporate tax frauds, surpassing Plutus' payroll $115 million fraud and the record $135 million fraud by former EY executive Anthony Dixon. Dalma is one of the largest formwork firms in New South Wales. Competitors state repeatedly tenders prices 15-20% to 20% below other bidders for Tier 1 projects, including the state government's $476 million Victoria Cross station development at North Sydney. Formwork involves laying the structures into which concrete is poured during construction. Jones Parton's principals, Bruce Gleeson and Daniel Swar, were appointed as voluntary administrators of Delma Form Specialists late last year and confirmed the ATO had notified them about its investigation after their appointment. Most of the companies involved in the alleged fraud include a series of labour hire firms swapped out every two to three years, have been placed into external administration and are understood to have an inadequate or poor record. The Delma case follows a separate investigation into an alleged tax fraud of up to $70 million involving another New South Wales construction firm, Titan Crane, which is headed by Sydney Olympic FC President Damien Handler. Titan denies any wrongdoing or involvement in the lead scheme. The ATO is funding Home Advisory Liquidator Stephen Hathway to investigate the Dalma Group and to take control of DFS after it emerged Mr Gleeson had been the administrator of other related Dalma entities in 2010 and 2011. And major CBD office towers are selling at 20% discounts to their peak value. The best evidence yet that the correction in Australia's office market is nearing the bottom. The latest deals in play include the 16-storey building at 628 Burke Street, Melbourne, which was bought seven years ago for a little over $180 million by Swiss fund manager AFIAA and is now set to be acquired for 120. In Brisbane, US giant Brookfield found a buyer for its $300 million tower at 240 Queen Street, with boutique syndicator Quintessential Equity raising capital for a sale price at $257 million, according to a deal flyer. Also closely watched by the market are two proposed divestments, including ASX-listed Mervac. The first at Sydney's 255 George Street is held in a fund man- now managed by Mervac. A half-stake is under offer from Singapore's Keppel at a price that values the entire tower at about 730 million. Two years ago, as value peaked, the tower was worth 875, meaning its market value is now around 17% lower. In Melbourne, Mervac is close to finalising a deal to sell a Collins Street building, having written down its book value to around $340 million, representing a 20% discount to its peak value two years ago. The shift to remote work, combined with uncertain business conditions and surging interest rates, sent office values tumbling around the world. The shakeout arrived late in Australia, with some experts flagging values could drop 25% before it fully washes through. And Australia's big four consulting firms have seen the value of contracts awarded by the Commonwealth nearly halve in value following the federal government's cold war against the sector after the PwC tax scandal. Cold shoulder towards KPMG Australia, EY, Deloitte and Sign Advisory, which acquired PwC Australia's government arm in a $1 fire sale, has been a win for other firms, which have enjoyed noticeable increases in business over the first half of the financial year. Amid the fallout from the PwC tax scandal, federal agencies cut spending at the big four firms by more than 42%, 308.2 million in the six months to December 31, compared to the same period a year earlier. 
analysis of Oz 10 to date reveals. Deloitte had the smallest decrease over the half, with the value of contracts awarded in the six months of December down 20.6% to about $111 million, followed by a 24.4% decline for KPMG to $147 million. Businesses at EY dropped 56.6% to $49.2 million from a year earlier, according to Ostender. While the volume of contracts was similar, values overall were lower than the previous half, when three agreements alone totaled $51.4 million, including a $28.3 million contract with the Department of Defence for Program Management Services. PwC secured $110.1 million worth of government business in the first half of 2023 financial year before details about its tax scandal came to light a year ago. There's been little work for the acquirer of its government business sign advisory, which secured a $1.1 million contract to support the Department of Health's primary care work. There's been a slowdown in federal government projects and procurements, which has resulted in lower spending on specialist and external advisors. The consensus was that smaller firms were getting more work on lower-valued contracts who would have previously gone to the big end of town. And the drums are beating louder about a Bendigo Bank acquisition of its $1.3 billion industry peer, Judo Bank. Bendigo is under pressure to grow to compete with major banks, and an acquisition of Judo would provide not only scale but a sizable entry into the business lending market. Judo was co-founded by outgoing Chief Executive Joseph Healy in 2016 to service small business air customers that major banks may overlook. It listed successfully in 2021 with a $2.3 billion market value, equating to 1.7 times its book value. It's been a tough going since then as interest rates rose, with its capital costs higher than those of Bendigo Bank. Those costs would fall by as much as 100 to 200 basis points in a merger. After ANZ gained permission from the Australian Competition Tribunal last week for its $4.9 billion acquisition of Suncorp Bank, there's likely to be more consolidation in the banking industry. While Bank of Queensland is another potential buyer of judo, most think Bendigo Bank is better positioned, even though it's currently doing a technology upgrade. Healy has already introduced much modern technology to judo. And French building giant Saint-Gerbain has sealed a $4.32 billion takeover offer for CSR that includes accepting liability for the Australian company's asbestos. CSR's board said late Monday it had unanimously recommended shareholders accept the $9 per share offer from Saint-Germain as providing attractive value and certainty. The price represents a premium of 33% to CSR's closing share price on February 20. CSR, established in 1855 as a sugar refining business, has a portfolio of building products, including Monia Roofing, PGH Bricks and Jiprock. Its chief executive, Julie Copes, said Sanjaban has strong strategic and cultural alignment with CSR. Ms. Copes said Sanjaban was buying all of the company, including claims for asbestos illnesses linked to the mining of raw asbestos fibre by one of its subsidiaries decades ago. CSR's involvement in asbestos mining ceased in 1966 and it stopped the manufacture of products containing asbestos in 1977. We've been responsibly paying claims for decades and nothing will change, said Ms Coates. The company will continue to pay all valid claims. CSR's asbestos provision stood at $187.1 million in September last year. CSR Chairman John Gillam said the offer provides attractive value and certainty for CSR shareholders. Mr Gillam said he did not expect any opposition to the deal from the Foreign Investment Review Board. And Optus is laying off almost 200 staff from the company, making deep cuts into one of the newest business ventures, which installs smart home devices after a recent review. A total of 198 redundancies are taking place this week, according to the Telecommunications Union, which described the cuts as deeply concerning. 
The telco cut 600 staff last year, a move the union believes had a major impact during the telco's national outage in November. Optus is making significant cuts in the company's O-team, with staff in this part of the business understood to have begun receiving redundancy notices as early as Tuesday. The nation's second largest telco began winding down parts of the business as early as last month, discontinuing a service called the O-Team Online, which it had charged customers a $10 monthly fee to provide on-demand support post-insulation. And white-collar industries such as banking, accounting and consulting employ more men in their most demanding and lucrative roles, fueling pay disparities that mean women earn 20% less than men. The median pay gap or base salaries at businesses with 100-plus employees was 14.5%, according to company-level data published by the Workplace Gender Equality Agency for the first time. The gap jumped to 19% once bonuses, overtime and allowances were factored in. Some of Australia's top companies were among the biggest gender equality laggards. Dairy manufacturer A2 Milk had the biggest gap at ASX 200 at 40.5%, followed by infrastructure services provider Ventia, 39.1%, intellectual property law firm IPH, 38.9%, and airline Qantas, 37%. Beach Energy and AGL were the worst of the energy and mining giants, each with a gap of 33.2%, while Commonwealth Bank was the worst of the big retail banks at 29.9%. And it's the last week of the profit reporting season. Linus Rare Earth has booked a decline to net profit of $39.5 million. Health insurance provider NIB Holdings has recorded a 19.4% increase to its net profit at $104 million. Online retailer Kogan.com made a net profit after tax of $8.68 million for the six months into December 31, compared with a bottom line loss of $23.8 million a year ago. Endeavour Group, the operator of retail chain BWS and Dan Murphy's, has recorded a 2.5% increase to group sales at $6.7 billion. Earnings before interest and tax increased 2.6% to $661 million. Net profit declined 3.6% to $351 million. Suncor's cash profits in the six months of December were up 13.8% at $660 million. TPG Telecom's annual net profit shrunk to $49 million from $513 million. Non-bank lender Liberty recording an underlying interim net profit of $64 million, down 34% on the previous first half. Bedding and furniture maker Adair's sales slumped 10.1% to $291.4 million. Queensland Coal Export Terminal Dalrymple Bay Infrastructure delivered a 7% rise in annual net profit to $73.9 million. Takeover target Illumina swung to a net loss of US $150 million. That's $228 million Aussie. Pathology group Helios posted a $636 million loss. Burns treatment specialist Polynovo has swung to a $2.7 million net profit. Mortgage insurer Helio, formerly Genworth, reported underlying profit of $247.7 million for its full year, up 7%. Selfwell has lifted its net profit to $1.6 million. Cooper Energy's underlying earnings before interest, depreciation, amortisation gained 2% to $60.9 million. Pathology company Helios has crashed to a bottom line loss of $636 million in the December half. Retailer... City Chic widened statutory losses fourfold to $21 million in the first half of fiscal 2024. Gold Coast-based childcare operator G8 posted a full-year statutory profit of $56.1 million, up from $36.6 million. Woodside Energy's net profit for the year ended December 31, dropped to US $3.32 billion, that's $5.1 billion Aussie, from US $5.23 billion in 2022. 
Payment platform Zip delivered a net profit of $73 million. Supermarket chain Coles Group's first half net profit fell 8.4% to $599 million from $643 million in that year earlier period. Software company Altium reported an 11.4% jump in net profit in the first half of fiscal 2024. Reese Group has reported a 20% rise in half-year net profit to $224 million. Payments terminal provider Cairo eked out a $5.1 billion net profit for the half, with EBITDA line lifting by 40.6% to $27.3 million. Sydney-based data services company Appen also reported suffering a statutory loss of US $118.1 million for the year ended December 31, and an underlying earnings loss of US $20.4 million. New Zealand telecommunications company Chorus's net profit slipped to $5 million New Zealand dollars from nine million New Zealand dollars in the six months to December two thousand twenty-three. Mexican fast food chain Guzman y Gomez reported a statutory net loss after tax of three point nine million dollars, more than double the one point one million dollar loss reported in the previous corresponding period. Online travel plan and flight centers profit for the period jumped to one hundred twenty point two million compared to a loss of eighteen point three million dollars a year earlier. Perpetual's underlying profit for the six months to the end of December was ninety eight point two million dollars. Gaming technology businesses Light and Wonders net profit rose to $180 million, compared to a net loss of $176 million in the prior year. Payments platform EML Payments reported a $12.4 million net loss, recorded in the six months of the end of December. Data center giant NextDC has recorded a $22.5 million loss, up almost $20 million from the prior corresponding period. Engineering group Worley has swung to $160 million interim profit from a year earlier's $99 million loss. Transport and tourism group Telkelsian reported a 20% net profit increase to $43 million. Australian Clinical Labs posted a statutory net profit of $5 million, down 80.5%. Its underlying net profit of $10.3 million was down 48.5%. And that's it for this week. And next week, I'll be talking to Brooklyn-based Real Essentials CEO Isaac Wolfe who is a leader in the fashion industry and who is committed to producing environmentally friendly and ethically sourced clothing that helps people look and feel their best at an affordable cost. And I'll be talking to economist Saul Leslake about the latest inflation figures. For the most exclusive access to leading economists and business from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business from my website, leonkettler.com. If you like Talking Business, please leave us a review with Apple Podcasts. Thank you in advance. In the meantime, catch me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn and YouTube. And if you want, leave a comment. If you want to contact me, email me at leon at leongettler.com. I answer all emails. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.